0: Okay, it's it's true. I would like to continue the particular Old Testament narrative, which zeroes in on how David actually assumes the throne that God had promised to him. The question that just uh, flows throughout this whole text and is really really important, is will David wait for God's promise to him to come as the Lord's gift? Or will he seize it by his own initiative? As we went through 1 Samuel and kept wondering exactly how God would fulfill this specific promise David proved several times that he was committed to waiting for it to come as the Lord's gift. But it still has not happened yet. We have known God would keep his promise to David, but the process has just seemed way too long. I would bet that there's not a person in here that is thinking any differently. When is this actually going to happen? Now, just imagine if you didn't know the story of First and Second Samuel, where you would be right now in this ongoing story. And because this process has been so drawn out, and still hasn't happened as we begin 2 Samuel, we have to come to realize in some new and very important ways so much more about who God is and how he creatively works to tie all of his purposes together. Now, that's what we should be coming to realize. It's not just a story about somebody else that waits for a specific promise. This is something that is true for each and every one of us in various different ways. What really bothers us so much about this process is exactly what God knows we have to learn. And we've got to realize that. Maybe that's why it bothers us. We know we have to learn this lesson, usually over and over and over again. And what's really behind this lesson? It's very simple, but it is the biggest and most important lesson in life. God is God, and we are not. Once we really and truly learn or begin to embrace and swallow and digest this fundamental truth, it becomes the sweetest truth of all because we are then more willing and eager to go to God, to trust God, to serve God, to love God, to worship God, to know God. Know Him, not just know about Him. And somewhere in this process, there's the aha moment that finally hits us all. We are we realize that we're 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 now a part of this redemptive purpose of God. We're actually a part of it. But his promise to us of glorification and eternal life is not fulfilled now, obviously, in this life. We wait for it, we look forward to it, we hope in God who promised it. God did indeed save us in Christ, forgive our sin, make us new creations, indwell us with his Holy Spirit, and place us in Christ as part of his family. And we live now in light of these things. He is preparing us now for spending eternity with him which means that he is sanctifying us in this life now. He's making us more and more like Christ now. Using us and empowering us now to be a part of proclaiming the gospel in order to bring others into a saving relationship with God Almighty through Jesus' Son. This now is part of the process of God's redemptive purpose. It's not the whole purpose, but it's part. But we still often wish, don't we, that we could just speed it up and receive all of God's promised blessings and the glory of heaven now. And there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people duped by so-called Christian ministers who promised that you can get it all now. I tried not to say the title of that book. Thousands and thousands of people. David's long and exhausting wait for God's fulfillment of the promise to be the ruling king of Israel is a great lesson for us to learn about how we should trust and wait on the Lord again it's God's process God is God and we are not him It's another way of saying what God calls the shots so at the end of first Samuel Saul dies and in the beginning of second Samuel David hears about what's happened first Samuel began with the Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines. And 1 Samuel ends with Saul, Israel's king, dying in a battle with the Philistines. In 2 Samuel, we see how God's honor is vindicated as David finally defeats the Philistines, establishes his kingdom, and brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. If you look at both of these books together, you see these big events all tied together. And it's quite a picture. David makes a statement in chapter 4, verse 9 of 2 Samuel here that's really a commentary on his whole life. In calling out to the Lord... He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And you know what? He says exactly the same thing at the end of his reign, which is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 29. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. Yeah, he had the big picture. Yes, David is the main character in 2 Samuel, but we must not make the mistake of thinking that this book is all about him. Guard yourselves against the temptation to only be interested in David because his life is just so wild and entertaining and captivating. And recognize that we live in a culture that is literally obsessed with knowing all the details of people's lives, especially those people in the spotlight. And if you've been paying any attention at all, you know that the last couple of weeks, when Hollywood's most glamorous couple's Every written word in any of the socialite magazines is all about what happened, who said what, what's going to happen with the kids. It's an obsession that we have in our culture. Well, 2 Samuel is not a Christianized version of People magazine. So what is 2 Samuel really all about then? Well, this book is not primarily about David, even though that he, he is the main human character. It's not even about covenant kings. It's a big theme, but that's not really it either. It's really much more deeply about the covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom God will bless, preserve His covenant people. And if you realize something there, this is not just the theme of this book, it's the theme of the whole Bible. In fact, those of you who are blessed to hear Lane Tipton last year, starting off in Genesis, this is the message of the whole Bible. How the covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom God will preserve his covenant people. And David is a type of the future Messiah king to come. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords. A type is a person or an event that foreshadows or symbolizes or is an example of another person or event. Son of David. Is that talking about Solomon? When you see that phrase? No. It speaks to the future reigning king of kings who is coming, Jesus Christ. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first 16 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. With his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. What a way to hear about Saul's death. David and his men, remember, had been delivered from participating in the battle with Saul when the Philistine commanders told David and his 600 men to go home. Why? Because the Philistines didn't trust that David, the Hebrew hero, would actually fight with their Philistine forces against Israel's King Saul and David's own people. Probably a pretty good assumption on the Philistine commander's part. This was a great and surprising deliverance from the Lord to David because he was in what looked like to be an impossible situation. And then David returns to the Philistine home that and his men now had south in Ziklag and what do they find? A city burned and all the people gone. So again the Lord's providence in the Lord's providence David finds the raiders he defeats them soundly and he returns back to Ziklag back home with all their families and possessions which is amazing. Now, at this point, David does not know the outcome of this huge battle up north between the Philistines and King Saul. And here in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, this disheveled man appears in Ziklag with news of the battle in verses 1 and 2. Now, remember, it's about 80 miles 80 miles from Mount Geboa to Ziklag, where David was. When this guy shows up, David asks him three questions at first. Where do you come from? Verse 3. I've escaped from the camp of Israel. How did it go? Tell me. Verse 4. The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Third question, verse 5. And now it gets strange in verses 6 through 10. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboah. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet, which is an armband that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Does everybody know what's going on here? The Amalekite is lying. Because he was counting on getting some kind of reward. And why was he counting on a reward? In other words, what reaction was he counting on from David? David. The Amalekite was counting on David's reaction to Saul's death, being the best news ever. He believed David's time to seize the throne had obviously finally come. All the circumstances sure looked like they pointed to it. He believed there were times when the Lord's promises, and we've got to ask if this Amalekite even knew that much about God's promises. If, if that time when the Lord's promises required a slight push came, of course he was the person to help David out. But neither David nor the author of Samuel agreed with this particular position. What a great and courageous man he was. Key words, the first part of verse 6 by chance, by chance, being right there in the thick of battle, managing to deliver Saul out of this life, of course, at Saul's request, then taking his crown and his royal armband before the Philistines were upon him, escaping from the battle and traveling in haste like some super marathon runner for 80 miles just to let David know, wow, what a guy. At this point, the scene dramatically changes as David and all of his men are overcome with grief. Very well-written story, isn't it? Kind of keeps you hanging there for a second. And this part, verses 11 and 12, is really the center. It's the center of the story. If we were telling it, we'd probably want to skip to this this part and go on to how David deals with this guy. Because it's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? To realize that this Amalekite is just standing there while all this mourning and grief is being poured out. But this is actually the most important part of this passage today. These men are warriors. Get that? Warriors. Who deeply grieve as they hear that Saul and Jonathan have died. This is the same Saul who spent many years pursuing David so he could kill him. And since these guys were with David when that was going on, they're mourning the king who was trying to kill him. Yet David and all the men, see that word? It's there, all. Tore their clothes, mourned, wept, and fasted for Saul and Jonathan for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel. And that went on until evening. I don't know if we can even picture that, can you? Six hundred warriors in deep grief, mourning. And I'm just sitting here thinking that Amalekite's watching all this, and he's got to be starting to feel a little like, uh uh-oh. Why? First, and this is probably, obviously, what this Amalekite did not get, was how could they mourn over Saul. Grieving over Jonathan and the people who had been killed and all the people that had been displaced, remember? The towns were taken, they took off, and then the Philistines lived in them, and the house of Israel, the whole nation. We can probably understand how they would be mourning for Jonathan, the people in the house of Israel, but what about Saul? The answer is that they had a sacred respect for Saul and his f- official capacity as the king. And this was the principle that controlled David and obviously which finally or at some point, or maybe gradually, had been passed on to his men. Because remember the first instance in the cave? When Saul was in there by himself? David had to strongly stand up to his men. He said, this is it. God's handed him into your hand. Kill him now. I'll kill him for you. And then it happened again later when David and his buddy snuck into the camp. And each time, David stood up and he said why they could not do that. And this was the reason. He communicated a sacred respect for Saul and his official capacity as king, even though Saul was trying to kill him. That's one of the most remarkable things about David's whole life. He trusted God to put him in the position of king when it was God's time. And he knew he could not touch the king that the Lord had anointed as king before him. This is what kept David from regarding the the temptation to circumvent God's timing concerning how long Saul would reign. In other words, David did not regard this temptation as an opportunity to better his own position. I'm wondering how many of us would have been one of David's men. This is the kind of man that you follow. Even when you disagreed with him, the respect is just out the roof. There's something bigger than David. Yeah, I know who that is, but, I mean, he really knows it. But we can also understand how deeply the condition of the people of God disturbed, disturbed these guys too. Scattered all over creation in the northern part of Israel. The Philistines ruling in the cities. People not trusting the Lord. They're at their wits end about what to do. We need to stop right here and ask ourselves a a question that relates it's not an exact one-to-one correspondence but we need to ask ourselves if we have an obligation to mourn over the condition of the people and the visible church today it can be painful true It's not that difficult to observe and identify much of what's wrong and in infecting the local body of Christ. And most of us are usually pretty quick to do that. But it's also not that difficult to just stay there and cultivate a sense of evangelical haughtiness and arrogance that may even look like a slightly more humble version of Luke eighteen eleven. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people greedy unrighteous adulterers or even like this tax collector it's a small space between recognizing the the, and mourning over what is wrong and then taking that next step and lifting ourselves up so high that our attitude destroys everything we want to do to help and to get people back into submitting to the word true we know this but we need to remind ourselves, and this is one of the places in Scripture where we can, instead of having an enjoyment, and usually if we get to this place, we we collect other people around us that can be these little rebel groups you know, that make themselves feel better by, by lifting ourselves up and talking about everything that's wrong with everybody else, which may be in part true as far as doctrine and theology and direction and every other way, but it's not if we cultivate the attitude that can actually undermine what god wants to do so we need to be growing together with many other genuine believers in our day to understand that our living now in this world means living with living with the union the coming together of strikingly different heart attitudes. And these are so easy to see, but we've got to identify them right now and realize this is what it's going to feel like to live now, knowing the truth. Are you ready? You already know this, but I've got to say it anyway. On the one hand, we grow in the certainty of the hope that only comes in Christ, and what does that do? It builds a reservoir of joy, deep joy, deeper than we've ever known before in our hearts. Growing in the certainty of the hope that only comes through Christ. And on the other hand, and at the same time, this deep joy that is founded on the Word and the person and work of Christ is joined in our hearts with a profound and increasing grief and sadness over the state, what we can see of Christ's church. Especially in the USA and other developed countries. And we go, how can those two things go on at the same time? It's not either or, it's both and. And that's one of the reasons many of us have every other year now since 2006 gone to this huge gathering, did doesn't make any much difference how many people are there, where men that have held on to the truth, demonstrate both of these attitudes, which brings a respect because we see the humbling of these men together from different backgrounds who are what? Together for the gospel. They know their weaknesses. They know how attitudes can go. But so far... So far, they have been a demonstration of the proper way to respond in a culture that is more and more uh, doing away with God and his word and professing Christians are more and more mirroring the culture and thinking it's okay. Calling us back to the truth and at the same time being humble about it because they grieve over it genuinely and we need to develop those same kind of cur- it takes courage to express the joy we have in Christ at the same time grieve without you know, letting grief destroy all the joy what's the point it looks like God's failing it's his church you look at history this is why history is important folks down through church history, this is nothing new. It's just a lot more organized now than it was before. The question for us, then, is whether the hope and joy given by God's Word and His Spirit will keep us going in teaching the truth of Scripture, even when we may be constantly surrounded by unbelief and compromise, Which also means constantly dealing with the grief that goes with that realization. And we need to do that in humility and grace. So, are you up for it? Is it worth it? If you're like me, you're going, I don't want to do this alone. Lord, I will if you call me to. I think I I want to. But it sure would be great to have other people walking down this road together and you are not the only ones in this community. There are many. Now, back to the text. The right kind of fear can actually keep us safe. It's a backwards way of looking at verses 13 through 16 here at the end of the chapter. This is hard this morning. We're talking about things that are not comfortable. Grief, weeping, mourning, wailing, fasting, executions. What an uplifting passage. It ends with an execution. Look beyond it. This Amalekite had mistakenly assumed that David was driven by the same passion for power and position that he was. So he told this story and showed David the crown and the armband of Saul. So we read here that after the mourning and the grief had been poured out and the fasting over, David asked the Amalekite, his last two questions, which then led to his execution. First, where do you come from? Haven't we heard this question before? Yeah, it's the first question. Why is he asking it again now? Because he's making sure that this man knew enough about Israel that he knew about Yahweh. Yahweh. And remember, this is all David knows about what happened up north. And then David lowers the boom in his last question. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed in verse 14? Why can he ask this? Because David was afraid to take his hand to the Lord's anointed, Saul. In other words, his fear saved him. This man didn't have a fear of God. He was been around long enough, a sojourner. He was there somehow. He wasn't with the Philistines. We don't have a lot of questions here, but David recognized a hole in this guy's story. We know the truth. We just went through chapter 31. David's figuring all this out on the fly. And this is the question you see that David must have asked himself repeatedly to keep from doing something he knew he shouldn't do. Is that a lesson or what? Yeah, it's a lesson for us. And asking himself this question gave David multiple opportunities to teach his own men by his own words and his own actions as he lived through this process. And that's important. Notice that the Amalekite had no answer to this question. I think this is very similar to the silence that all those with no fear of God in this life will have on the day of judgment. There will be no answers when God asks these questions. This last question should direct and inform all of our behavior if we belong to the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, which every believer in this place is in, if you belong to Christ, you are in God's kingdom. There is such a thing as a healthy, saving fear, a fear that preserves a godly fear that should control us in this way. We know the Bible speaks of fears several different ways. The one we always hear is, don't be afraid. That's different than this. Even Jesus has the the sayings of, don't fear the ones who can kill you. Fear the one that you will answer to. The one you can answer to. You will. Dale Ralph Davis recounts a story that illustrates this for us. This is because we need to take a breath right here. But this, this story will help. There was once a Polish prince who always carried a picture of his father next to his heart. At certain times, he used to take it out and look at it and say, Let me do nothing unbecoming to so excellent. That is the way all kingdom servants should live, controlled by fear that's grounded in love and respect and reverence. Only Amalekites would call that little story, what this guy did, as pathological. Try telling that story in a particular setting that's hostile to God and you may not have heard the word pathological, but you may hear some lot, a lot of nastier versions. Insults, insinuations. Again, we should compare this Amalekite's lack of fear with Saul's armor bearer in 1 Samuel 31.4. Saul asked his armor bearer. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come, and thrust me through and mistreat me. This is what really happened. so this Amalekite was somewhere in a hole around there somewhere because he knew this happened. But he made it his story. But Saul's armor-bearer would not for he feared greatly, and that's what this means. What a difference from the sometimes flippant way we flirt with and then jump into temptations that we should know better than even to get near. There's another kind of bigger application here. I almost hate to, to say this one because we'll forget the first one because this one, You know, it's easier to talk about and debate. Let let the first one that's personal grab you. But it is, open doors don't necessarily mean it's God who opens them. And you hear, there's books, I mean, so-called Christian bookstores that aren't really, probably, are filled with shelves of, How to know God's will when he opens it? God does open doors. But just because there is an open door doesn't mean that he's the one that opened it. It's not the last word on the subject. The Amalekite then receives justice in verses 15 and 16. But man, is this justice mixed with irony. For instance, he is punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't do it. And as Americans, we say, that's not fair. Call art. But you realize that's what happened, right? He's punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't do it. But. He received what he should have received even though it was not based on any physical evidence at all except he had the crown and the armband, which didn't pertain to actually who did what to whom when. It's just he had it. So what can we say about this? Well, we can definitely say that the judgment of God found him. Found him in his lie and repaid him in line with his intent, if not his deed. Does that broaden the spectrum of how God will judge? There, you're not going to have a appointed attorney before the Lord Jesus if you don't know the Lord Jesus. There's no objections. There's silence. The judgment of God found him in his lie and repaid him in line with his intent. Heart. So, right here in this first chapter of 2 Samuel, we have run head on face-to-face with the God who exposes us, who delights in truth in the inward being, and who sets our secret sins in the light of His presence. Big themes throughout the Word of God. David writes, David writes in Psalm 51, 6, you've heard this. Behold, you, O Lord, delight in truth in the inward being. Yeah, David, just like us, learned this the hard way many times. But he learned it. Moses prays. In the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 8, where it was recorded in another way, he says, You, O Lord, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Last and surely not least, Jesus says to the hypocrites in Luke 12, verses 2 and 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And every believer in here is humbled, and we're crying out in our hearts, Oh, Lord Jesus Thank you for your blood that covers all my sin. And everybody else is hiding in the rocks and hoping the mountains fall on them before Christ returns. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we desire to have truth in our inner being. and to genuinely grieve over the desperate condition of the church and to live life fearing only to displease or dishonor you search us O God and know our hearts try us and know our thoughts see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our benediction? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us,